Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, so when you're ready. I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is David Trainer, the founder and CEO of New Constructs. Companies use adjustments and accounting shenanigans to manage or manipulate their earnings, uh, often to disguise the true economic picture of what's occurring in the company. New constructs unpack those distortions to deliver the real economic reality of the company. We're going to talk to David about how New Constructs does that right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Fund. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. How are you, David? I'm doing great. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Likewise. Uh, just explain to us what New Constructs is. Sure. It, you know, we, we've been around for a long time. I started this business out of my apartment in New York in 2002. And the goal has been to provide investors with sort of the, the ideal model and scrubbing of financials that they would have if they had an infinite amount of time to read through K's and Q's and build a sort of a supermodel every time. Um, I, I, that was my job at Credit Suisse in, in the mid-90s. And I was in charge of, of a sort of a global template that we integrated and, and implemented around the world with a small team. And, uh, but I saw that there were sort of real limitations to Excel limitations to just time in terms of how, how long it takes to read a filing. And this was back, you know, when we first started doing this. So we first started, you know, when I first started doing this kind of work to be like the, the annual reports were like maybe 20 or 30 pages long. <laughs> and, and now they're 200 to 2000. And so, um, I was doing this at Credit Suisse and it was, it was tough work. And then, you know, lo and behold, the tech bubble comes along. And guess what? Frank Quattrone and his people are not reading 10Ks and 10Qs, right? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to know what's in the 10K to sell e-greetings. Uh, you know, or, or you don't want to know what's in them. Correct. You don't want people to be looking at those. And, uh, and, and so I can tell a lot of funny stories about how that went, uh, the intersection of what I was doing with those guys. But uh, there's a sort of a lot of apathy around understanding fundamentals uh, and – and so it was clear to me that there really weren't a lot of people around willing to do this kind of work. And so really New Constructs was born out of this idea that I had in, you know, right around 2001, 2002 that we need to get machines to do this kind of work because, number one, humans don't want to do it. Number two, it's very difficult to get any number of humans, I mean small number, large number, to interpret filings and data in a consistent way. Right in a right way when when I'd seen you know having built thousands of these models and done this work around the world I'd seen that there really is one version of the truth and it takes a multi-sector view when you because when you when you get caught up too much in the accounting idiosyncrasies between companies in a particular sector versus another sector you sort of lose sight of what I like to call sort of the 
immutable underlying economics. And the underlying economics that are consistent across all companies and all sectors are this, I, this notion of, hey, there's a certain amount of cash flow relative to a certain amount of capital that's gone into a business. And whether you're in the business of insurance or selling widgets or providing consulting services, that concept applies. And so it's through that lens that we view all accounting data. And when you, and you break it down that simply, well, the, the job, you know, you really can get to one version of the truth. It just takes a lot of really focused brain power and, and which we augment with technology and that's a really long answer. I'm going to stop there. Well, I, I, I want to come back to the uh, to the process and how you how you use the machine learning. But I just wanted to discuss. You you did some research. Uh, you partnered with Harvard MIT to do some research to quantify the impact of the earnings manipulations or the distortions. It probably doesn't rise to manipulations. It's just the management uh, of earnings. And so, what were the what were the key findings of that research? Well, first of all, I, I do need to be clear that we did not partner. I know this is this is details, but but my colleagues there at Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan are very particular about the fact that it was a completely and, and totally independent exercise. Um, they came to me with a problem. People didn't want to take the cl their class anymore with respect to understanding fundamentals and footnotes. And, and I said, well, you know, well, why? He said, well, because they don't think that fundamentals matter. And I said, you know what? They're right. You know, most people in Wall Street don't think fundamentals matter. Is that a matter. cyclical thing or is that is that a trend over time? Is that a market high kind of thing? You know, I wish I had the answer to that question. What have you seen over so, the last over the, the, the last twenty years or so? I I this the cycle's moved in one direction. There's been yeah. no cycle. People yeah. care less and less. And I remember talking to my old boss Mobison after the tech bubble when I was starting new constructs, kind of making sure that, hey, we're not going to be going straight back into a world like the one we'd experienced together in the, in, in the tech bubble where nobody cared about footnotes, there was going to be a return to analytical rigor, which we sort of both were thinking. And, and that's never happened. And I, and I think that, that we can go off on that for a while, but no, it's not happened. And, and, and that's why students at Harvard Business School didn't want to take the business analysis and valuation class. And I said, well, the students are right because it takes too much time and it's too much work for people to do this. But what if I told you there was technology that gave them the really good data that takes so much time to get for free, for the same price you, you, you get the bad stuff? And he said, well, that's interesting. And so, yes, they, um, they, they, they thought the technology was interesting. And the logical, logical question that comes out of, hey, there's this new technology to do fundamental research for you, is, well, does it produce data that's enough better to improve stock picking, right? So I've, I've got I've got a few of the statistics here. You said that um, there's been an increase over the last thirty uh, over the last twenty years because that was the period of the study. There are thirty four percent more adjustments uh, over that period of time, and you say that, or, or sorry, the study says that uh, only fifty five cents out of every dollar of adjustment is actually reflected in analyst valuations. Yeah, I mean that's why the paper, you know, is saying that it's an increasingly material issue, and that uh, markets are inefficient because this data is not taken into account because too few people read footnotes. Uh, sort of, it's not a surprise, right, to you and me. We're like, you know, I'm, I don't know many people who read footnotes, uh, and you know, our competitors typically their data collection process is to employ thousands of people in a third world country, 
And I always like to say, you know, English is hard enough as a second language. Try footnotes English, right? right. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's a big deal. And and so the, the 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 case study that they wrote about the technology gave birth really to the idea of testing the data. And so they went through and they tested the data independently. And and for the academics, this is a big deal because they're effectively introducing to their colleagues a new paradigm for fundamental data, right? All the research on investing in stock picking over the last 50 years has been based on CompuStat. And what these guys are, right. are, are providing their colleagues is evidence that, well, CompuStat's not as complete or accurate a data set as you think. Is it that the CompuStat is accurately reporting what is being reported by the companies themselves? It's just that that is not a um, a reflection of the economic reality of the companies because they're able to game on a quarterly basis? It depends on what you expect. I mean, CompuStat is in the business of collecting financial data, so you expect them to collect all the all the data that they should. And what the study finds is that uh, not only is CompuStat not collecting data from the footnotes that they ought to, but they are miscategorizing or missing you know, about one in, in every right. uh, four or five items on the income statement. So, I, I, I mean, I, I, for me, the takeaway, Toby, is that what we, what we have been unwilling to recognize is the a level of sophistication required to analyze financial statements and scaling that expertise has been a sort of uh, an impossibly big hurdle for people up until this point. And I think this, this paper proves that New Constructs has successfully uh, met that challenge. Well, one of the things that they, the, I think that the, the upshot of what they said was that if you long and short the most manipulated, so short the most manipulated, long the least manipulated, uh, that or, or the ones that had the pot, yeah, sorry, the least adjustments. That was fifty-four bips of outperformance per month, which is six and a half percent over the course of a year, which is very material. Uh, if you can't beat the market, that's a big margin to uh, to, to help you get there. The last thing that that, that they said that I thought was particularly interesting is that the earnings for the S and P five hundred were distorted by 22% on average last year, which is material. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a serious, serious deal. I mean, um, you know, the other thing that the paper shows that that there is there appear the, the statistics show that there is significant bias uh, in terms of the number of hidden items uh, in core earnings around uh, near beats and um, and, and meets uh, of earnings. So effectively, the paper showing that managers intentionally bury stuff so that they can manipulate earnings. And it, it, it's a large amount. You know, I mean, if CompuStat's missing 45 cents on every dollar, 22% is kind of a, you know, a lot of some, some, some stuff ends up netting out, Toby. That's why that number's a little bit lower. I see. Um, the, the, the last thing in the paper that I thought was interesting was that uh, it's the highest uh, the, the most amount of adjustments that we've seen since 2000. That's why I asked you before if this is a cyclical thing, if this is something you see sort of closer to market peaks. You're right. You know, and, and I misunderstood your question. I, I thought the question was, is it a cyclical thing that people don't pay attention to footnotes? And, oh, no, and that's, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's going in one direction. <laughs> correct. Correct. Uh, and, they, and, and, you know, with our technology, they never have to. Uh, the level of distortion is is cyclical we have found and we have, have you know looking at the s p and the overall market in general 
the level of distortion that we are seeing as of the third quarter of 2019 is that it is, yeah, it's not been this high since right before the financial market crisis and the tech bubble. So that's, uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting, uh, I just wanted to ask you about this is sort of a, a, a bit of a non secretary, but, uh, when you were talking about earnings adjustments, um, I thought of uh, Neutron Jack and General uh, Electric. Did you ever did you ever spend any time with those? Because they were famous for uh, almost beating or, or just beating every just beating or meeting expectations every every quarter. Did, was that something that you ever looked at? Yeah, uh, you know, in fact, you know, we we wrote uh, a a long report on GE about a. A year or two. Let me look it up exactly exactly when we wrote this report, predicting that uh, GE was going to uh, see a potentially very large. We wrote in April 6, 2016. We we said that we think that um, that the implied share price of GE was closer to eighteen dollars a share because of how much, how much, how overvalued the company looked relative to its return on invested capital. And when GE um, ended up crashing, a, I guess a year, a year and a half or so ago, it got right back around to about that level. Right. And, and so what we found is that, yeah, too much of the street was buying in to the pro forma core earnings number. When you took a look at the underlying economics, that the stock was significantly overvalued and, you know, I, I have people ask me all the time when we when we bring up these kinds of situations. Okay, yeah, I see it, but when's it going to crack? Right. When will we see the reconciliation? And sometimes these disconnects persist for years, as they did with GE. You know, it was always funny to me because when I was on Wall Street too, everyone loved Jack Welch. He was the man from the right. gut. You know, right. he was a good guy. I saw him admit on CNBC one time. He said it like this. He goes, you know, you know, they said, what's your secret to, you know, doing so well with earnings all the time? And he said, you know, well, I've got this little division called M&A. And whenever I need a penny, penny here, a penny there, I just go to those guys and say, you know, find me some, exp- you know, unusual merger or gains or expenses or restructuring reserve gains, losses, you know, that I can use. And, and I thought to myself, if that's not a dead giveaway, <laughs> that this is, you know, a game, I don't know what is. But yeah, GE is a great example of, of where you know, for so long the mentality of the street had so much bought into sort of this great GE thing when really the emperor had no clothes and it took a long time a for long the market time. to figure Right. Um, so what's the process at New Constructs? You have, this, you have this machine learning process that goes through the notes and then there's a, a human being looks at it. Is that, is that, is that how it happens? That's roughly it, right? And and it's built on the, the most important thing to, to to think about here is is like how long it took us to get to that point. So I mentioned I started this business out of my apartment in 2002, and you know I spent about a year um, figuring out whether or not the technology to do what I wanted to do was possible. And the original technology was really just a, a an application that combined. The filing itself, because like traditionally, you got to download a file and you look at the numbers and you type them into Excel. And every time you finish typing one number into Excel, all the intelligence that went into figuring out where you got it, what it means, and why you put it in that in that cell is gone. 
Right. And and that was a real problem with with me when I was at Credit Suisse because occasionally, you know, we'd make mistakes or right. or counting methodologies methodologies would change. We need to change data. And the whole idea of, of how hard it would be to change lots of models at one time it usually meant, Toby, that you argued that it didn't need to be changed. <laughs> because doing that kind of work was crazy. I mean, imagine you know, if you got a thousand of these models, and and as I did at the time, I had stacks of filings, you know, paper filings, because they, they didn't work, they weren't in digital form until '98, and I was doing this stuff starting in '96. Stacks of filings, like almost as tall as me. I got to go through that. I got to find the right filing. I got to look up the area in that filing where this data point exists, and I got to go back and reconcile that to what I put into an Excel model. That takes more time than actually building the model to begin with. Right. So, so our first innovation was to combine the filing and the database and the parsing tool all in one application so that every time one of our expert analysts parsed a data, data point from a filing into a bucket of our system, you know, for example, accounts receivable from the balance sheet goes into the accounts receivable bucket in our system. The machine was not only sort of tracking what the human does, and, um, but recording the, the original text, the value, the location in the filing, right? And so what we, you know, we had to do a lot of that in the beginning before we could go to the machine and say, okay, well, a human has parsed accounts receivable from the balance sheet into the same bucket 999 times out of 1,000 times that we've seen it. Do you still need the human to do this for you, Mr. Machine? The machine says no. And we say, okay, great. And then we, 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 we offload gradually more to the machine and work more, spend more time on more sophisticated or challenging complex disclosures as well as cover a lot more companies. The first few years we were, were around, all we covered was the S&P 500. Right. And how far have you extended that now? We covered the top 3,000 stocks in the market, uh, and you know, in the beginning, we didn't have, we didn't cover Qs either. So we cover all the Qs and the Ks, the top 3,000 in the market, and and that's, quite frankly, that's pretty easy for us, right? Like our 10K filing season used to be this six to eight weeks of, of hell grind for you know going through all these filings, and and, and now it takes us less than a couple of weeks. Um, and people don't have to, you know, come in at six and leave at eight. Uh, it's gotten a lot faster. Really, what we're focused on now is, is is really continue to perfect the automated parsing processes so we can start covering international companies. Because right. right, we're focused on the U.S. now. And what, what's what are some of the typical uh, tricks that managers like to pull that you see uh, to 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 game their statements? Well, a lot of it's. Um, you know, unusual gains and losses that are buried in things like cost of goods sold or depreciation and amortization or SG&A. And so you can have changes in restructuring reserves. You can have a, uh, a loss on the obsolescence of inventory, sort of one of my favorite ones from a long time ago. Um, the, you know, there's sort of an, an almost an, I, w- I don't want to say innumerable, but there are a huge number of, of these sort of unusual items and we've systematically collected all of these over time so that our dictionary of these is really large. And that's a big trick here is that so much of machine learning, the experts will tell you, is, is about the quality and the size of the training data set. And so we spent really a lot of the first few years at the company just really building out that training data set. And it's really, it's really good and sophisticated. And as the paper 
from from the Harvard and MIT guys points out, it's not just that we collected the data, but it's that we correctly categorized the data. And I, I think, in my opinion, that's only possible with an expert because there's just so much stuff and so much variation. If you don't have somebody who knows how to build a model collecting data, you're probably not going to get the data right. And, and all, all of our analysts go through six plus months of, of training before they really are allowed to, to collect data on their own. Um, How many even, analysts do you have? We've got, we've got a team of about eight analysts right now. And so we do all this. And we've, so we've been as many as you know, 15 analysts, right? So we're doing this with less numbers. And, but, the, it's, but there's so much augmentation in the machine too. Like a, a big part of the process I sort of left out um, that, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's only interesting to nerds like me, but we have a ton of like these Lots little Lots of the automatic... listeners are definitely nerdy enough to, to enjoy it, so go, go for it. Great, great. Uh, a big part of what we, we built after a couple of years was what I call data checks. And these are just little things that the machine comes behind the human after the initial parse and says, hey, this number that you parsed in, in 2018 is 10,000% bigger than 2017. You think maybe you got, you collected it in You got in the decimal place from. Correct, right? Just little stuff like that. Or hey, the income statement is off by $34, which is exactly the same amount as this charge. Did you collect it as a positive when it should have been as a negative? You know, um, all kinds of little stuff like that, that I don't want to distract my smart expert analysts with having to think about when they go through a filing. Because guess what? It's just, it's, if it's something that a machine can figure out, let's, let's impart that to the machines and reserve the intelligence and attention span and focus of our analysts to the things that are interesting and challenging. And, and that's, that's a huge part of our culture and our focus because otherwise, you know, I don't think I can, I can keep these folks around long enough to justify how long it takes to train them. Would you make any changes to gap accounting? Do you think that there, there is there anything that you would do differently? <laughs> I'm taking that that's a yes. Oh yeah, you know, I spent five years on FASB's investor advisory committee and um, and it gave me a real appreciation for the you know the, the depth of thought and, and effort that the uh, the board puts into accounting rules, um, the, the the level of complexity and the challenges of changing and dealing with these things across so many companies, and it's something I you know I sympathize with because it's it's a lot of what New Constructs does right. We're trying to create a one version of the truth, measure profitability. Return on invested capital is what we call that, and what I referred to before is cash flow from the business relative to the capital in the business. It's a really hard thing to do, um, and and so yes, um, the, the challenge that with with the accounting experts that you have at FASB is that they're not investors, and their history. If you look through it, um, they you know that 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 group of folks was for a long time sponsored entirely by corporate America, right. so. There's some conflicts there. Now, they're not anymore, but the culture's still evolving. And so I spent a lot of time really championing championing the investor perspective because every time that FASB says, oh, you know, here's something we can fix, and they go to corporate America, and corporate America says, oh, no, we can't do that. It's too expensive. And I'm like, of course they're going to say that. They don't, they don't want it to be there. And corporate America sometimes excuses are like, yeah, well, you know, we can't do that. We don't have the data for that. And I always would say, okay – that's information too. 
and in particular, the, this excuse was around some additional derivative expo, ex, uh, disclosures. And um, I, I told FASB, I said, this is a very troubling response because we need this information as investors to understand the relative risk involved in their derivative portfolio. So if the company's come, coming back with, we don't have that data, it's too expensive for us to pull that together, then that tells me they don't know what's going on in right. their portfolio, which is Warren Buffett has called these weapons of mass financial destruction, seems to be a highly reckless and careless way of managing your business. So either they do have it and they're running their business right, in which case there's no real cost to sharing it, or they don't have it and they're not running their business right, in which case I need to know that too. And so, Sorry, keep going. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm rambling too much. The, the, the takeaway was I had to have that conversation a few too many times, to be honest. Uh, and and so, yeah, let me I'll, I'll pause there, but I, I can give you some real specifics on some even some recent accounting changes that that are um, moving the, the needle in the wrong direction. Yeah, please. So there's a this recent one um, with respect to unrealized gains and losses. And Warren Buffett has, has um, hammered on this one as well. And for a long time, FASB uh, and the rules said unrealized gains and losses related to your investment portfolio will not flow through the income statement because, as we all know, especially quarter to quarter, asset prices fluctuate. Right. And the fluctuation of asset prices should not really affect someone's interpretation of the underlying economics of the business, especially if you're Intel or especially if you're Apple when you've got right. a lot of cash on the balance sheet. That's going to be inevitably moving because you got to put it in, you got to invest it. So that's the way it used to be. Um, and all this would flow through to the balance sheet and show up in accumulated other comprehensive income, which would fluctuate a lot. And so we would, we wouldn't have to make an adjustment for this in our NOPAC calculation, but we would pull out the accumulated OCI from invested capital so we could take the swings out of the, the denominator. But FASB recently changed the rules and said, no, no, we want all those unrealized gains and losses to flow through. That's great. Uh, bad move. Um, Who does that help to do it that way? Because that I, I saw uh, Buffett complain. I was at the AGM. I, I was at the uh, Berkshire General Meeting, and it's something that he's mentioned a few times as as distorting uh, what they do. How, who does that help to to report them that way? You know, I always ask that question too, Toby, because that is the question. Like, all right, somebody's benefiting from this, right? Somebody. Um, I'm not really sure who. I mean, maybe I guess people who've got gains um, and want to be able to, to, to boost their numbers on that uh, could right. be, you know, could be, you know, look, I've been doing this for a long time um, and, and I've seen a lot of efforts, you know, to obfuscate performance over the years. And, you know, generally what this rule does is just introduce more noise and generally undermine the quality of accounting data, which creates more room for misinformation which is a big part of what most of Wall Street's trading operations are based on. You know, I look at CNBC and Kramer, and these are these are propaganda misinformation machines based on a lot of subjectivity and um, misinformation, and, and that creates dislocations in asset prices that, um, you know, sophisticated trading shops prey on. I mean, that's their bread and butter. And so the more churn or, and, and, and the more the more – you know, blood you can throw into the water, the more those guys can um, can make money. You, uh, one of the articles that you publish on the site was uh, some of the most distorted companies, or the, the the companies with the most distortions, and and you compared that with some of the companies with the fewest distortions, or the companies that understate their earnings. And so, I, 
One of the ones I found particularly interesting was uh, STZ, is the ticker Constellation Brands, uh, which is something that, with full disclosure, we're short in the firm. Do you, can you are you are you able to go through uh, how they're doing or what they're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'll pull up the model right away. Uh, and uh, you know, a big part of of all this work we've done on the collection side, Toby, to ensure that you know we can audit any number that goes into the model or into the database because that's the that's the only way you can go back and fix stuff, right? I mean, the the level of difficulty and time required to go back and look up a, a number in a paper filing or even a digital filing. We have all this stuff linked up. We share that with our clients. It's been sort of a hallmark of our offering to our fundamental PM clients is that every single number is auditable. So when I'm looking at my Constellation Brands model, We've got a tab in there that's a reconciliation tab that goes through and shows every single adjustment we make to reported net income and um, to, in order to get to net operating profit. And then every single adjustment we make to take the balance sheet and convert it into invested capital. And so when I'm looking at Constellation Brands, and I'll just focus on the 2019 fiscal year-end data, you know, I can see $3.4 billion in net income. And then I've, we've got 1.9 billion in non-operating gains hidden. So hidden items in our system is always stuff that you can't find on the income statement. Right. Uh, it's either in the in the balance. Oh, I'm sorry, either um, on, on in the footnotes or the MDNA. Um, we've got reported non-operating items or net expenses of um, 368 million. So those numbers. You can find uh, the other big adjustment we're making for, excuse me, Constellation Brands is 132 million in, in a tax adjustment. Uh, and we, I found pretty early on in the system, Toby, we had to do a lot of work on taxes because the income tax provision is often entirely irreconcilable to the real cash, excuse me, to the real cash operating taxes of the business, even if you're looking at the cash flow statement. And the net deferred tax liability footnote, a lot of it is because of this magical item called the valuation allowance, which is something that fluctuates a lot around what the auditor's perspectives are on the likelihood of the company to pay taxes or to realize tax loss carry forwards. Anyway, it's highly subjective. Um, I've never met anyone who could figure it out. <laughs> Uh, and we spent a lot of time and a lot of our models were broken in the beginning because we just, you know, there's a, there's a lot of methodologies in, in a lot of the sort of famous books, the McKinsey book on how to calculate cash operating ta taxes. And we found that that just broke down, Toby. It broke down the ability to get to a real cash operating earnings number by adjusting the income tax provision. It just doesn't work right. for some companies. So anyway, um, those are the adjustments. And if we wanted to go through and look in the footnotes uh, or the uh, filings to see where we found these income statement adjustments. Um, so I've got this little ability to – not little ability, this awesome ability to uh, go through and, and, and click on a tab in our filings or in our models. It says marked up filings. And when I go there, it shows me the 2010K, 2019-10K. It has a section for income statement adjustments. And in there, I've got a section for the hidden items. And um, I can click on 4.9 million um, uh, flow through of inventory step up. Uh, and that we find on page 32, which is a footnote that shows 
some of the components of cost of goods sold. So um, we've got we've got that item. Uh, we've got a loss on inventory write down. We've got other losses. We've got an impairment of intangible assets, uh, restructuring and other strategic business development costs. These are all buried inside a cost of goods sold as broken out on page 32. Um, we've also got an unrealized net gain on securities measured at fair value right. of 1.9 billion. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty material. Page 111. Um, and we do the same thing for all of our balance sheet adjustments. So a lot of these things are just accounting arcana, but so, some of these are, they, do you, is it so, is it just that, that, you know, some of this is judgment call and some of this is, um, or is it that they are not necessarily in relation to Constellation Brands, just generally speaking, is it that they are um, trying to give a more positive view of the company than is actually the case? You know, w without being able to ask management directly, it would be hearsay and, and um, you know, I, I can't always, I don't know the motivations of, of companies. I can tell you that, that uh, having been looking at footnotes and, and doing this kind of work since 1996, I've found that there appears to be, at least in my opinion, a pretty, um, pretty clear uh, attempt to, to obfuscate more than to disclose. And that experience was sort of confirmed with my experience on FASB when these companies make up these excuses as to why they couldn't disclose things that they needed to run their business. Uh, I think we also see it with XBRL, Toby, right? Like the number of, of custom tags that companies have developed um, in XBRL effectively creates a digital haystack um so you don't think, think that you don't think that so does that's that's kind of an interesting question does that xbrl make it just explain what that is and then does that make it easier or harder to uh to pass the statements for a machine uh <clears throat> so for for us it, it it took a long time but it did make it easier um it only took a, it took a really long time because we really had to figure out how companies game that system too and, and we could never have done it if we hadn't effectively been tagging all this stuff the right way for, the long, for a long time. And, and so we really had to become real experts in, 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 in XBRL in order to identify how far up sort of the taxonomy chain companies were messing with stuff. And so most of XBRL we, can, we have to throw out because companies get it wrong. Most you have it, to throw out. Most that we throw out. Um, because it's wrong or it's customized in some way that makes it not consistent with the taxonomy that's set out. Right. And so, um, but XBRL, to give some quick background, it stands for Extensible Business Write-Up Language. And this idea came around from the AICPA, the, the big accounting association, uh, around the time I started New Constructs. And the idea was that, hey, you know, all this data comes out in all these different forms. Let's create a standard reporting format so people won't That's have to go idea. out. It's a great idea. Great idea. The fundamental flaw in the strategy and the execution was that they were depending upon the companies to cooperate right. and collaborate. And you do have a few companies collaborate. Microsoft, they're awesome, right? Because Microsoft wants everyone to know how profitable <laughs> <Right. they are. laughs> But otherwise... You know, you know, the, the reason I mentioned the number of, uh, I think it's something like 40,000 different tags now in XBRL. The reason I mentioned that is because having that many different tags to describe what's going on with a company utterly defeats the purpose of XBRL. All right. you, 
you put things into a machine readable form so you can trust a machine to read not one of them, but all of them. Because if you have to go through and check each one, well, you might as well just look at the darn filing, right? right. Um, and so the fact that companies have so deliberately done this and, and, and oftentimes, you know, deliberately, I think, create custom tags where they don't need to. Um, and I can say that, you know, I think with, with, with a little bit more experience than other folks because we have created a normalized system right. for understanding core earnings that – Independent researchers, researchers at fairly prestigious places, right, have come along and said, hey, by the way, these guys are doing all this and they're doing it right. And by the way, you can make money if you use this superior data set. So we've done it. And I think in some ways that really speaks to the challenge uh, and the magnitude of the, of the problem we solved at New Constructs, uh, Toby. Uh, and stop me if I'm getting off on a bad track here. But I, I think that you know, and I saw this when I was at Credit Suisse, somewhere along the line, somebody at a firm like us or CompuStat or Capital IQ or FactSetter, somebody collecting data, someone at, at um, XBRL, someone along the line somewhere needs to say, hey, this data point gets treated in this way. Right. And, and you really need to have someone get that right because if it's not right every time, then what's the point of the system? And by being a smaller private firm where a, a very small group of people, most of the time me, are making that decision, well, we can get this stuff pushed through. But when you've got companies who are going to, of course, disagree on what one line means versus another, uh, when you've got folks in a third world country who aren't going to really understand the subtleties of the different things, because there are a lot of accounting line items, Toby, that are the same exact word, but they mean different things right? and vice versa. Uh, if you're a sell-side firm where there's a lot of expertise, there's a disincentive anyway because, you know, let's face it, it's going to be a whole lot harder, even harder to sell WeWork or Lyft or Uber to the public if everyone's able to look at their profitability on an apples-to-apples basis as opposed to a community-adjusted basis, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Um, so the, the, the expertise to do this kind of work doesn't exist in a lot of places. It's different from the accounting expertise that the folks at FASB need because you really need to understand how an investor uses data. And, and it's got to be a streamlined decision-making process um, that can you know quickly apply to lots of companies. And, and just a lot of firms aren't set up for that. It's interesting that you raise Microsoft as somebody who's assisting in that process because one of the uh, one of the articles that you have says that big tech tends to lead the, uh, the overstatement of uh of accounting earnings so and i think you you gave us there are a few examples in there apple and facebook and uh mchp microchip uh i forget the full name of that but is that do you do you see does big tech tend to be one of the worst abusers is that is that what you found you know it's interesting um big big tech is leading the decline in core earnings uh these days but for a long time Big tech was carrying the majority of the load as well. Right. And so what we're really seeing is some reversion to the mean here. Um, Apple in particular had an astronomically high return on invested capital, uh, which I famously pointed out was going to decline and the stock price would decline with it. But I was way wrong about that. <laughs> I was not wrong about the reversion to the mean of the return on invested capital. They were up right. in the 360 percent range and um, – you know, in a, in a world where you've got open competition, that's just not going to last. Turns out it hasn't really mattered that much because it's happened slower, I think, than, than maybe I expected. But it's happening now. Um, Facebook, same thing. 
because the regulators are, you know, even where competition in the, in the case of the Apple, they're just seeing more competition, right? Whether it's Hawaii, whether it's Samsung, uh, and we haven't really seen any breakthrough innovations in the iPhone in a long time. In some cases, they're just catching up with where Samsung already is. Um, that's not to say that's not to diminish the cash flow generating power of Apple. It's just that the the returns instead of being 360 percent are now closer to 180 percent, and that's a that that means that the core profitability of the business is is declining. It's still crazy profitable. Same is true with Facebook, and for a long time. Those guys were, 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 were meant – those companies were the only uh, – meant that the tech sector was the only sector where we were seeing a consistent rise in earnings. Right. Because for the last few years, we've seen economic earnings for the overall market in decline, even though accounting earnings have been going up. And this is the first quarter where we have seen core earnings for the tech sector actually fall and fall by more than any other sector as well. But that, the gap earnings don't look that way. The gap earnings are up for the tech sector. Oh yeah, that's right. It's an interesting. That's the that crossover. I think is very interesting because that's uh, possibly shows that 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 some of the um, the innovation is now coming in the accounting rather than the uh, technology. Yeah, I mean, isn't that always the way it goes? I mean, I remember that's with Enron for a while. They had a good business. When they ran out of a real business, they just turned to accounting and. Uh, I don't know if most people know this or not, but it's one of my favorite facts about Enron. But you know, at the, at the end, they employed more people in their risk management division than any other part of the business. And risk management's stated thesis or stated mission was to basically um, make accounting earnings look as, as as good as they could, so that managers got paid. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, just just while we're talking tech, uh, tell some Frank Catrone uh, dot com stories. So, you know, Frank, Frank was a little bit above my pay grade. So, you know, he didn't make it to New York very often, which is where I was. He was Credit Suisse before he set up his own shop, right? Correct. Correct. And I was at Credit Suisse. So I was at Credit Suisse before, during and after the tech bubble. And so, you know, a couple funny stories, like I was this, this product we we had at Credit Suisse was called the Value Dynamics Framework. And, and I, and effectively it it meant everybody around the world was going to use this one version of the truth model that focused on return on invested capital. And I probably had 70 to 80% of all the analysts around the world on board with this. I'd been around Europe and Asia and taught people to do it and, and had analysts um, you know, doing a lot of the input on their own, and it was going great. And Mobison was running the, the morning call, and we pretty much didn't let people on the morning call if they didn't speak through those terms. They didn't talk about returns on capital, and they didn't talk about the expectations for future cash flows baked into stock prices. didn't have to be the only thing they talked about, but they did need to check that box. And not everybody complied, but most people complied. Well, we wake up, we wake up one morning, and Brady Dugan has announced that the – team from Deutsche Bank, Quattrone's team from Deutsche Bank, it may have been UBS, I don't remember which one, but one of those firms um, had just been acquired by, by New Constructs, and I'm sorry, by Credit Suisse, and it was run by Frank Quattrone, and the size of the research department doubled overnight, and for a while, um, you know, uh, we didn't always let these guys on the morning call because they couldn't speak the language, right? And then, uh, you know, I think Brady Dugan called Al Jackson, who was the global head of research, and said, "Are you kidding me? Get these guys on the call. This is the cash cow." This, you know, I mean, you know, and and we, they went on to make billions. And uh, and I'll never forget though, Al Jackson who was the global head of research, and who was my boss at the time. I remember going to the morning call with him every day, not with him, but I would just go every day, and and uh, we saw when we were forced to bring the tech guys on the morning call, we saw the the the, the analytical trend go down real fast. We went from 
return on capital and expectations baked into stock prices quickly to price to earnings, then to price to sales, then to price to clicks, and then the price to eyeballs. And I'm thinking to myself, well, and back then we didn't have Google Analytics. So I'm like, how do they measure all these clicks? And then I'm like, all right, I know they can't measure the eyeballs, right? Um, but I'll never forget when the first time the te- one of the tech analysts went with price to eyeballs, Al Jackson stands up in the middle of the morning call room with like 30, 40 people in there and throws his papers down on the desk and says, I can't believe this blankety blank, 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 and kind of curses everyone out of the room and walks out. <laughs> and I thought, you know, bucket list check. I, I, you know, I had my first real Wall, Wall, Wall Street move uh, experience. Um, that was one of my favorite stories. A couple other, one other uh, story, if, if you want me to go on, was yeah, sure. In, in meeting with the, the directors of research for Quattrone's tech team, couple guys and I won't I won't mention any names here but they were the directors of research they were two big tech analysts they covered some of the biggest names in tech and so I would I did with them what I did with most analysts I would sit down I'd say hey you know uh, I think you should use this model and in the beginning I got a lot more pushback than I got toward the end um, with with a traditional analyst and this was my first and I'd done a lot of one-on-one meetings with the tech analysts individual analysts and most of those meetings, you know, I felt like I would win those meetings. Like it's very hard to argue against sort of the merits of what we're doing. Hey, we want to accurately express the underlying economics of the business, and then we want to accurately quantify what those future economics have to be to justify the price and, and speak about valuation in those terms because it's a lot more tangible way to d- identify what's overvalued and undervalued. Uh, there's no reason to be a fortune teller. Mr. Market is our fortune teller every day. Anyway, that's my pitch. And uh, I was having some success. Eventually, I got pushed up to the heads of research and explained to them, hey, this is what the model does. Here's what we do. And they said, well, you know, David, we can't use your model. I said, okay, well, well, why? And I said, well, it's because we really have two earnings numbers. Um, the one that we publish and our real one. I said, okay, uh, what do you mean? He goes, well, look, we all know that in order for a company, the stock to go up, it's got to beat the number. So for the stocks we have buy ratings on, our published earnings estimate is actually a lot lower than we think the earnings power is going to be. And I said, whoa, okay. And this was before anyone knew about the whisper number, right? Um, or that the whisper number was a well-known thing. And I said, okay, well, um, why don't we just put the, you know, put whatever your published number is in there. It's no big deal, right? And they said, no, 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 it's a problem because if we were to put into our, our cash flow forecasts, the cash flow is based on the lower number. Well, the stock in, in your reverse DCF model, uh, you know, it's going to look expensive because it's going to take a long time for the cash flows to uh, equal the amount that the stock price is, is um, reflecting. And I was like, OK, uh, I don't know what to say to that. You know, you've got two sets of books here. Um, and I remember going back to Mobison and telling him, like, hey, you know, this is what they just told me. And, and Mobison's first response was, have you told Al Jackson? <laughs> Um, and it, it turns out that that's really not the most ethical way to sort of run your uh, research business. And, and I didn't have an answer for that. Um, you know, outing them on sort of, you know, a different number that they were public with versus a number that they were private with. This has all since been remedied by regulation FD or fair disclosure, where you kind of, you know, can't really do that anymore. But, um, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, 
that's you know that's a pretty good pretty pretty good pretty good dirt i guess quite a few of those guys got in uh trouble including catron and uh and and numerous others who we probably shouldn't name but um if uh if if folks want to get in contact with you david what's the best way to go about doing that www.newconstructs.com uh and that's our website there are plenty of places to to get samples of data to demo what the website does, uh, get free research. Um, look, we're really trying to, 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 to minimize the gap between where people's research or analytical habits are today to where they might want to be. Uh, we're here to really do, to democratize access to the truth behind the numbers. We think it makes the market um, more efficient. We think it improves the integrity of the capital markets. We think that raises standards of living for people here in the United States and worldwide, and we think it's the right thing to do. And we think that if not, if it weren't new constructs creating this technology to read footnotes, someone else would. At some point in time, we got to get machines to do it because just like digging ditches, you know, you know humans just don't want to do it. And I mean, we're not here to say, Toby, that fundamentals need to be 100% of your process, but we're just saying they don't have to be zero, right? <laughs> just like the Harvard Business School students. You don't have to ignore the real fundamentals. We're going to give it to you. Take it. Um, and it doesn't have to be everything you do. Uh, and in fact, you know, one of our first big partnerships was with Scott Trade, and and I was very candid with those guys on the beginning, like, hey, maybe this doesn't work for you because most of your clients focus on technicals. And they said, no, no, we want to we want to try to give people more information. I said, well, that makes sense because, you know, if you got a, a list of ten great technical ideas, why not screen that against fundamentals? So you got five great ideas with good technicals and fundamentals. Have your cake and eat it too. So. Um, we do our best to try to make that as easy as possible for people. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing it by hand, so I certainly, uh, I'm a subscriber to your service and I certainly appreciate uh, the numbers because I'm a believer in garbage in, garbage out. So the better the numbers are as they go into the model, the better the model should be. Um, well, I, I appreciate you saying that and, and, it's, and you're unique in that, Toby. I, I can't tell you how many managers... I've met over the last 15 years who, who managed, you know, 50, 100 plus billion dollars who said to me, and this is quoted in the Harvard Business School case study. Yeah, David, your data is probably better than what I'm using now. But as long as everyone else has the same bad data, I'm OK with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, most of that I got um, before the ETFs came along. And so, um, you know, a, a part, part of the reason this paper from Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan is so important is that it, it's kind of pulling the sheet off the elephant in the room and saying, look, everybody, there's no reason to hide now. We know the data is better and it's out there and it's independently. It's not just David Trainer, New Construct saying it. It's Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan. So take advantage of it. Why not? Wisdom Tree is a new partner of ours, right? They're using it in their ETFs. Um, and we've got you know, the business is, is, is it's, this paper has been very good for our business. And I think it's hopefully going to be very good for the markets in general. Well, that's, that's great to hear. And on that note, David Trainer, New Constructs, thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. I had a great time. <laughs> 